Hi, I'm Adam Hembry. This is the Improv Conspiracy Podcast. Here are my thoughts on genre and story. Improv Conspiracy Podcast with your host, Bronnie. Hello there, my friends and my family. Good to have... Do you reckon... Do you reckon my mum's listening? Do I reckon my mum's listening? I don't think so. I don't reckon her interest in me is strong enough for her to develop an interest in improv podcasts. Uh, yeah, I reckon that's probably accurate. Um, anyway... Doesn't matter. Good to have you. Thanks for being here. Mum, if you are listening, shoot me a text. <laughs> uh, who's on the show today? Adam Hembry. That's who. Who's Adam Hembry? Great question. Adam is a producer, performer, and teacher of improvisation. He is also the co-founder and producer of Sooth Players, uh, the troupe that does completely improvised Shakespeare, and they are excellent at it, which is why Adam is such a wonderful guest to have on to chat to us about genre and story it's a really good informative chat heaps of great theory heaps of great philosophies from adam uh to help you understand how they approach uh genre and story in their work and why they are so damn successful at it uh, you can go to soothplayers.com and sign up for their mailing list so that you're the first to know of when you can catch them doing their work in action post covid otherwise enjoy this time with the wonderful Adam Hembry, my friends. I am obsessed with genre and story. I think most of the performance I've done since 2015 has been long form improvised Shakespeare. And then when it's not that, it's been other, other kinds of long form, especially genre shows, either with Sooth players, or sometimes with Impro Melbourne, or guesting on other shows. And I love having the space to make a full story. That's one of my favorite, most satisfying kinds of, of live performance, because I, I love the, the danger and the risk of improvised dialogue, but uh, having the sort of emotional and physical space to make scenes slow and to see longer trajectories for things, and then to watch characters be affected and develop and have some sort of resolution or frustration is really fun for me. I feel like I can have more fun as a spectator as well as a, as a player. Like um, there's been so many times where I've gone to festivals, for example, and had the chance to go see another show because I'm not playing that night. And I find myself just sticking around and watching the Sooth Player show instead because I just want to geek out on it with them and, and kind of share in that fun that way. So I guess that means that most of the stories that I've been a part of in that time have been either comedies or tragedies or histories, because we do our best to maintain those three base genres that, um, that Shakespeare used. And I wouldn't say that they're Shakespearean genres. They're much older and other people besides him were doing them at that time. But we try to stick to some of those familiar patterns. And I like to think of them as having shapes because I think it's easier to follow from the side of the stage or from the audience. But especially if you're in them, it's easier to sort of think like, where, where in this shape am I? And I think that because of those shapes, tragedy is the easiest. The reason being that tragedy is basically like a straight line 
down. <laughs> uh, like a, or like if you picture an arrow at a 45 degree angle just going down towards zero, that's a tragedy. Like you start at the top of that line uh, at a mountain top. You can imagine if the story was before that, it was a slow rise to that, to that top or maybe a plateau that's been there a while. But then from the beginning of that tragedy, when everything seems to be okay, everything that moves that story forward moves it downward too. Whether that's because there's some villain who has got it out for the hero of the piece, or whether it's because the person at the center of that story or the people at the center of that story have this terrible flaw, like jealousy or pride or ambition or something like that, uh, or because the circumstances around them are just pushing them that way. You know that that story is going to end most likely in death or banishment or exile, usually death. So they're really easy. <laughs> they're really easy to like come up with what's going to happen next because you know it just has to make it worse, whatever it is. And you have room for some comic relief and things like that. And the tragedies that are improvised can still be very funny. But as far as the story actions and the moves that you make, you're always pulling the floor out from under someone. You're always setting up a time bomb to go off in someone's face later. These are, these are reliable. Um, comedy is harder because comedy is a circle rather than a straight line. You can imagine like a 2D circle. It's still an arrow, just like that tragedy. Like it's still moving, but it starts at a place and then it kind of works its way back around. And the reason that I think it's harder is that instead of trying to tear everything apart, you spend the first part of a comedy uh, sort of laughing through it falling apart and being terrible already but then you have to put it back together and you have to somehow reassert the safe norm that things were before everything went bad. So like in a story where there's a, a, a dickheaded stepfather who won't let his daughter or stepdaughter marry until his other daughter marries or something like that. That's a problem. That's a, it starts bad. Everyone is mean to each other. Uh, stakes get high, but then things have to resolve. Someone has to relent. Someone has to learn a lesson circumstances have to change enough that there's less pressure on everyone and they can breathe easy. Uh, and in the process, there's this big release and everything's, everything's fine. And the sort of subtext of that is that there is this norm where everything's okay, that we're always aspiring to. And by the end of the comedy, we're going to get there. And that's why a lot of them end in marriage, kind of problematically, I would say. Um, that's the thing everyone should want, right? So they're way harder to perform. Like you, you've, you know, for example, to maybe start off in this place where everything's dangerous. I think we forgot that a lot in our early comedies as a troupe that we performed, and that's part of why they were hard. But then <laughs> you, you can revel in pulling the, the rug out from under people for a while, but then you have to get to the work of fixing things. And the thing about improv is when one person comes out and fixes things, the impulse of everyone else is to try to put them in trouble again. Because like we learn in good scene work that like you don't you don't want to avoid trouble you want to get in trouble uh, and you want to see what happens on the other side of that trouble and that's true on a scene by scene basis but in terms of the overall shape of the show there does need to be a path towards restoring things and that's very tricky to manage on the spot I think and then history history is both of them somehow so like in terms of its its shape I think. Uh, history is both a downward line and a circle. So we have to go in three dimensions to sort of see history. It's more like a downward spiral. Or maybe more accurately put it a forward spiral, like tip that circle on its side and sort of watch it progress forward like a slinky through time. We used to think of, as a troupe, we used to think of histories as tragedies with crowns. 
Uh, so it's basically the same thing as a tragedy, but it's always about kings and queens in succession and like who's going to take over for whom and who's plotting against whom and stuff like that. And instead of it being about one person's jealousy or pride or ambition, it's about like the the whole kingship and about the the, the nation or something like that. Um, but it was very vague. And there's a there's a reason that we basically never did them. Like I think I keep count. And we would have roughly the same number of comedies as tragedies, probably a few more tragedies. And then like a third as many histories or less, maybe 25% as many histories as those, like 50 to 13 or something like that. Um, and one of the reasons I think is that titles of shows, when the audience shouts out a title, it usually doesn't sound like a history <laughs> just off the bat, so it doesn't get picked. But also histories are scary. We kind of, they're messy on purpose. The same way that a show I don't know, the first example I can think of is something like the West Wing or House of Cards, where it's like, it's about the sort of leadership of a nation state, but it's not purely tragic. And there are moments of comedy and things are just inexorably moving forward. That's sort of what histories are for them. That's why that's probably why they're the most boring ones to read, if I'm honest, because we're, we're not in that time. We don't have those references for the politics that are happening right now. But I think they can be really fun for improv because you're allowed to zoom in and zoom out scene by scene. You're allowed to um, have the big sort of tragic soliloquy where a, a king or queen realizes their role in some horror of warfare or some crime they've committed. And you're also allowed to have the scene with two drunks who are just opining about uh, kingship and betrayal or having a bet over a pint of ale and clowning on each other. Like both of those scenes belong in a history play. And there's way more of those comic relief scenes in history plays than there are in tragedies, which is part of why they're harder to improvise too. You can find yourself getting sucked into one way or the other and then remembering all of a sudden this is supposed to be a history. It's actually not about this one person. It's about the whole country or it's about legitimacy or, or law and things like that. But I do think if it's doing well, a history is going to be like that forward spiral. And at the end, you can sort of turn it on its side and see the change you know, there has been a big historic change, but then you can turn the circle to face you again and realize you're back where you started. And I think that's kind of the tragedy of histories is that you see this new, this new person comes to the throne, for example, Richard III is dead, the tyrant is gone, long live the new king. And he gives this big speech where he sort of sounds a little bit like a tyrant himself, but in an in a approved way. But it, it's a little reminder that like, this is always built on violence. It's always built on betrayal. It's always built on dominance of people who will accept that dominance or not. So it's really complex. <laughs> um, but I think if it works well, it's really satisfying. And you can really kind of drop the mic on one of those history epilogues and make it feel like something has happened. Like there's been some sort of commentary, I think, which is rare in an improvised show, even, even a good one. But it, I, I find myself really like thirsting for that. And I, I think that long form narrative shows are my favorite way to get that sort of story satisfaction. As much fun as it also is to do more abstract or thematic or shorter form work as well. So you sort of inferred that the title suggests a genre to you and then how do you, amongst yourselves, how do you lock that down? How do you know within the first couple of scenes that it's a comedy or a tragedy or a history? Well, I guess this is true of a lot of ensemble things, but the easiest way to have a choice get made is to let one person make it. 
um, and then go with it. So most of the times when a, when a title gets suggested, someone in the lineup of five to seven people will have a chord struck in them and they'll know where this play is or what this play is. And they'll be the one who steps forward to do the prologue. Everyone else clears to the sides. And then whoever does that prologue has really two jobs. Uh, one of which is to tell us where we are and what the atmosphere is like. And the other is to tell us the genre of this play. So tell us it's a tragedy. Tell us it's a history or a comedy. And we often forget that and we end up, you know, putting our foot in it as a result. Or we default to tragedy <laughs> um, <laughs> it's because it's easier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that one person says it and then the rest of us have to do everything we can to honor that choice, make sure it's true. And it's, if you forget it, we've definitely had plays where like one person forgot that it was a comedy and is yeah. trying to like kill everyone. And we just have to, <laughs> we like have to keep having circumstances arise where the murder doesn't happen right. and, or it gets explained away or whatever, right. which is its own fun. Because in the movie, I've always struggled with, you know, it is that it is the same philosophy of like someone just needs to make the choice. But it's not necessarily in a prologue. It's more like uh, in the way that you paint the first few scenes, for example. There are there are ways that you can be really explicit and on the nose about it being a horror film or whatever. But when a story or a narrative show really can fall over is when anyone's hesitant about making that choice. Yeah, definitely. What you said before about um, doing the movie, about being about hitting a bunch of tropes, that resonated with me having done shows that are not the Sooth Player shows, like... Uh, I don't know, like a Western or a soap opera uh, and things like that. It's like, okay, well, how do I Western this up as much as I can? Or how do I make this as melodramatic as I can? Um, but like, I think it, you, you are doing more than just hitting tropes. You're, you're using cinematography to help you tell this story, right? So the way that we use a prologue to set the scene, you use scene painting, right? And so ideally, you, you've got two forms on top of each other. One is, one is film and one is, is improv, or one is uh, Shakespearean drama and one is improv. If they're working well together, then the best things about both of them should be improving the other. You should have good cinematography, specific framing shots, improving the improv. Like players right. should be inspired by those choices. Correct. And then likewise, yeah. they should make choices that inform someone else to, to paint or create something cool. Yes. Same is true of Shakespeare. Like, we have asides and soliloquies, right? And those yeah. are basically improv hacks. Yeah. They're they're like cheat codes to, <laughs> yeah. to yeah. give the scene subtext that it didn't have before. Yeah. Or to put a character in trouble, raise their stakes, make sure that everyone else knows how to get this person in deeper trouble later or how to yes. help them. Uh, you made me think of very early on, like the first movie troupe out of TIC back in like 2014 or whatever. We used to do um, director's commentaries and... We ended up having to get rid of them just because they were just like grossly misused. <laughs> Sometimes it would be like a director's commentary, which would then be inter interrupted by another director's commentary to yeah. comment on the previous director's commentary. And it's like, all right. <laughs> you had too much power. Exactly right. Um, we just like gave ourselves an opportunity to not agree in the scene work and just <laughs> fix everything in the, in the post. Yeah, yeah, and it's fascinating to me that comedy is on your list of genres that you would do, because I mean I've seen a few Sooth Players shows, and regardless of genre, they're always funny. Thanks. So, <laughs> well, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah. laughs> uh, you're the one doing it. But so, how do you then? Because I know in, and I'm sorry to keep uh, just grossly referring back to the movie as my um, as my example. 
But if I'm teaching, you know, discerning what genre you're doing, I will always suggest we don't do comedies in the movie. Like, because when we do an action movie, it will also be a comedy. When right. we do a horror movie, it will also be a comedy. But when we try to do a comedy, I don't, well, like, what do you do? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I do know what you mean. And I think that there, um, there's a sort of formal academic difference between something being a comedy or being comedic and being funny. Gotcha. Uh, and I think that we, we assume that all of our shows better be funny. Otherwise, we're disserving our audience. Um, but it's, it's not just that a, a comedy play is meant to have jokes or be funny or have clowns or fools or something. It's meant to resolve a social problem. Like that's what a comedy does. To move it back to film, you could do, you, you have all these tropes readily available for like a rom-com, right? Like the, so a rom-com is a really good point of reference for the kind of comedy we think of with Shakespeare is that it's, it's zeroed in on romance, but you have, you know, these two sort of tragics who, who can't, who, who desperately want love and can't find it. One of them maybe has commitment issues. One of them just keeps dating bad people, whatever it is. They look like they, they meet and they hate each other, right? So that's the same thing in a Shakespearean style comedy. There's some sort of social problem, um, whether it's between two people or two families or whatever it is. And then the goal is to put them through some hoops and then have them resolve that. They find out that they need each other, they complement each other, whatever it is. Um, and you could, you could make, do that improvised movie without feeling like you need to be jokey. It'll be funny that you have the Hugh Grant trope type and yes. the Sandra Bullock trope type. You know, that's kind of enough. And the same is true for ours. Like, um, I, like most people in the audience like, don't have a stock of Shakespeare jokes in their head. And like they, we don't all find all the same things funny now that people did in 1602. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if we were relying on those sorts of witticisms or jokes, like we'd, we put on a bad show, to be honest. It wouldn't be very good. But if there is that formal, that kind of structural shape of comedy where things start out in a mess and people try to fix it and fail and try and fail and then try and succeed. That's the part of it that's a comedy. But as far as signing up for festival shows and stuff, we always tick that we are a comedy show. Yes. If that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and you keep referring to like, I mean, conflict is inherent in Shakespeare and in stories. And so like, I just want, I'd love to have you touch on this because at every stage of an improviser's journey, they're at some point told to... Uh, stop arguing in a scene, for example, and then, and sometimes that's erroneously referred to as don't do conflict, or they misinterpret it as you shouldn't ever do conflict in a scene. But I think conflict is fine in a scene, and I'm always trying to make that clear. And it's obviously so clear in your shows, especially in a tragedy, for example, <laughs> there's conflict everywhere. And how do you manage that in a scene? What like what are your tips? What do you how do you manage a scene where like two enemies are there? They clearly don't like each other. They're not supposed to like each other. Yeah. What are you doing? I think that in both of those situations, whether it's a level one, week two class, or you're trying to do an hour long improvised Shakespeare show, the the rule of thumb there is that simple is is better. Yeah. Um, that it's better for improvisers to keep things simple. Yeah. And I think that that truth gets there's a, a good intention behind giving this note of avoiding conflict. I've, I've given this note as a level one teacher before, like, let's not, let's not have a fight in this scene. That, that's, a, that's treating a symptom rather than a cause. 
the symptom is the two characters arguing, but the cause is two very nervous improvisers. Yes. Um, they're extremely uncomfortable. They're afraid that they're going to look stupid in front of the people that they've just met. Yeah. Um, they may be trying to oppress each other because they each have liked a scene that the other did before and they want to try to like level up or whatever, um, or they want to try to make things high stakes. But because they're scared, they are subconsciously just batting away every offer mm -hmm. instead of accepting them, which is why you'll see two really angry characters, but no one who is accepting the insults from each other. None of, no one's wounded by the things, which in turn makes the blades dull, like they're not sharp. My favorite fellow students kind of coming through were the ones who I realized all of a sudden that they were really good at taking a punch in a scene, mm -hmm. that they would fall on the sword, they would, they would be shot. We're all we're at our best when we're like those kids on the playground who die really dramatically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> As opposed to the ones who are like, ping, it bounces <laughs> off me. I'm super. Yeah. And no one wants to play with that kid no. after a while because they're rejecting you. So in, in our shows, I think as soon as somebody makes any kind of aggressive move to claim status with that kind of power, I think we are at our best when we give it to them yes and then double down so if someone comes out as a as a sort of like is taking a high status posture speaking flippantly and then turns and yells at someone that will only be effective if everyone else on stage practically falls to the ground mm. in fear shakes in their boots offers oh, do you want me to kill him for you sir like that kind of a thing no please i'm so sorry because then from the rest for the rest of the play that person's going to have real power and they can actually use that status but if that doesn't happen then it just looks like an improviser made a mistake. Um, and that's not fun for any of us. It's essentially just yes and in argument form. Yeah, yeah. If anything, you should get comfortable having fights early in, in learning how to improvise. But I, I will say this again and again, you'll get that by doing it slowly in like allow, reminding yourself that it's okay for your character to get hurt. And that if it's, if it's okay with you for your character to get hurt and you realize that it's not you getting hurt, it's not you, the actor, getting owned on stage right now. You can actually separate your character from yourself in that way. You can actually offer that character up to take more punches, be hurt, and then continue to fight anyway, and then be even more devastated, and then give up and see what happens, those, those kind of things, which I think we get to down the curriculum, sort of. But it's an improviser fear thing. Yeah, it's such a difficult thing to, especially yeah, early on, to separate your ego out and offer characters up because yeah there's in the beginning you were just a person who walked off the street into a into a room <laughs> with a bunch of strangers and you're like of course you're going to protect yourself <laughs> no <laughs> and no matter how welcoming and inviting that space is i don't think most students feel fully safe on stage for a while i think they might feel physically safe and they might feel personally safe assuming everyone's doing the doing the right thing in that space but it's yeah it's a different thing to feel like safe in the art form or secure in the work that you're making good choices, which you're pretty sure you're not. And you're, and you're pretty much right about that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'm not sure if I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I remember my first ever improv teacher was my brother because we used to play GI Joes. We would set the whole, like he was eight years older than me. Uh, so bless him for continuing to play with me. We would set the whole lounge room up with blankets and stuff. And I would have my base and he would have his base and I'd have all my GI Joes and he would, he'd have all his, Classic. And he used to have to like sit me down and be like, Bronny, there is joy in your characters dying. Like, <laughs> what a have... line. <laughs> He's like, you have to sometimes let my bullets and my bombs actually hit your people. And, I'm, and I'd be like, no, no, no. But I have Captain Red Fox. He, he can't. I won't win if I do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, it took me so long to realize it's not about winning, it's about 
having a great battle that we can tell tales of <laughs> later. Yeah. So you also mentioned at the top um, having a trajectory in mind. So being able to be in your scene or, or be at the top of your show and sort of start to um, figure out where it's headed and try to try to guide it there. Hmm. Um, and in my experience, like uh, the majority of improv I do, I do by looking back at it. Um, so even in in a swing set show, we we are doing a narrative, but rarely am I making a considered choice about where I'm trying to get it to, unless it's minute 45 and I know we're finishing in six minutes and I could probably plot out the end of this. I'm doing a very haphazard and messy style of narrative, <laughs> which is purely based on looking back at what's happened and ch choosing in the moment. So how much are you how much of your time are you spending pushing it in a direction little if at all i th i think you're wise to mostly look back and i think that's a it's a keith johnstone quote actually to say that a great improviser walks backwards um or something to that effect like you're in a dark room and you're shining a flashlight back and walking backwards <laughs> and so you can see the path that you've come along but you have no idea where you're going and that's that's true even even in a long form narrative show if you know you're in a tragedy you know that tragedies usually mean death at the end the person who dies at the end could still surprise you. The manner of the death can be surprising. And I, I think that as much as these genres have shapes, they're also being driven by an engine or a twin engine, um, which have uh, one of those engines is surprise and the other is recognition. Um, and you're always sort of playing with both of those forces. So as a player, you know you're on a tragedy, you know it ends in death, but that death can still catch you off guard. Uh -huh. um, somebody can reincorporate a detail from the first scene in the second to last scene, and it can devastate you because you never imagined that it would be that person to land the killing blow. Yeah. Um, you can never imagine that that strange cocktail that the, the pub keeper invented is actually going to be used to deliver a poison uh, later on, uh, and the person who gives the poison doesn't know that they're giving it, that yeah. sort of stuff. That's where the real improv joy is happening. And I think that we can get to that level of detail if we trust in the overall shape. And it's a lot easier to walk backwards when you know you're going downhill. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a little harder to walk backwards when you know you're going in a circle <laughs> and you're trying to keep that circle making sense. Um, so maybe my shape theory will change when I actually get better at doing comedies. We'll see. I'm still working on that. I'm fascinated by any sort of internal, uh, not rules for your show, because I'm doubtful that you have specific rules. But for example, in Swing Set, I know that if Mario and I are doing a good job early in the show, we're very keen to do something. We don't want to always be servicing the plot. Like we don't always want to be making sure we're checking in with the right characters. We want to make sure we slot some people in that are seemingly superfluous and they might end up being hugely integral later down the track. But like we want to make a concerted effort to go, uh, you know, before the 20 minute mark and that's just a random arbitrary number. Like we want to make sure we've met two people who are just throwaway people, just trash that you can just have a dumb time in, not worry about what's happening. And yeah, they might be useful later, but then might not be. Do you have anything like that that like helps you not labor the plot over and over? I think that in the past, one of the mechanisms we had in place for that was we would have three or so opening scenes that didn't seem immediately related to each other. It would be, they could be physically distant from each other. They could have totally different tones and things like that. And, and we would know that they would establish sort of base reality or foundation or platform, depending on your school, where, that we would build off of. And then after those, 
we would usually have some sort of zany group scene, which like in a Herald acted as a palate cleanser and like just get, gave us a chance to get to get those jitters out of having to try to nail things uh, or sit in slow play. And then after that, it was time to start to start crisscrossing and things like that. But a lot of those start to fall away after a while. Like we don't really do that anymore. I will notice just from my eyeball checking the timer that I know how a show is going based on when the first time I look at the clock is. Yeah, for sure. Um, so if there is a <laughs> clock to be seen, if it's been like 17 minutes and I look at the clock, I'm like, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is gonna be work. I uh, hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if it's like 39 minutes when I look at the clock, I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All yeah. right. Uh, or sometimes it's like 42 minutes and I look at the clock, I'm like, what? <laughs> We're supposed to finish this? <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're having too much fun, man. Um, yeah, no, it can be. I think in terms of not so much rules, but uh, central expectations or pirate codes that we might have is um, uh, Brenna, our director, is often asking us uh, after scenes and rehearsals, like, okay, whose story is this? Whose, se whose scene was that? Um, and if we're looking backwards well, like you were describing earlier, then we will, after a scene or two, know whose play this is as well. And so not every play has one central character. And not every story is a hero's journey or anything like that. But it will raise the stakes for the audience if there, is, there are one or two characters, or maybe even three, whose story we follow in earnest. And, and that will help us as improvisers start to build the world around them a bit. And that also frees us up to give those nonsense characters to each other. Like if we know, like if I'm doing a scene uh, with, with Brenna, and I know by the end of that scene that I was serving up things to her, that it was really, she was having sort of central conflicts, something was driving her forward, she had a problem that needed solving, then everyone else on the sideline can see, okay, I'm going to come out and make something that's going to make it worse for Brenda's character later, right? And so after a few scenes of that, we can all be like, okay, we, and we all know that we need to serve things up to this character, um, and maybe this other character who's having similar issues, we're going to make them collide at some point. You know, these are, these are basic kind of possibilities, but they're more like guiding questions. And once you answer those questions, you have some easier improv in front of you or behind you to do. I think the, a really good example of this being executed in a really relaxed, calm, calculated way was I saw you guys do a show in Yay and Rick Brown, you had a really simple story laid out and it was pretty clear to me at least and obviously to you guys. And Rick Brown came out and did, I think it was a scene between like two apple pickers or something like that. Yeah. And it was seemingly completely unrelated. He just did a fun scene with his scene partner and it was mostly about the two of them having a good time. And then he just like drops like three or four sentences at the end of the scene that just like slots him in affecting who the story was about. Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> that's what happens when it's simple and, you are and you're following it together and you're doing it. Um, he was able to just have a lot of fun for five for five minutes and then be like, oh, and this is how this relates. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for one, Rick Brown is a wizard. Yes. Um, and for another, he's doing this really fun thing, which we've done some training on, where if you're committing to the fun you're having and just kind of letting the scene evolve, narrative accomplishes itself very quickly. You, you do only get a little sprinkle at the, at the top or the tail of a scene to immediately situate where you are. And then once you've done that, you can just have some improv fun and then forget about yourself for a bit. And, and then later looking backwards, you can pull, you can pluck some apples from that scene 
that you can drop later in the play, which I guarantee you Rick did. I can't remember oh, specifics, sure. but yeah, I can't remember either, but... that he and, and the rest of us would have tried to as well, because I remember that character, the, the crowd loved that character. Um, and every time he came back out, there was just like audible sound, happy sounds coming from from all the lovely people in the back. At yeah, and that was such a fun show. And it's like a ongoing challenge for me. And every time I teach the uh, the movie, um, is that like taking your eye off the plot for a minute, like uh, trusting that you have it, have it, that you have the story, and it's on tracks, and it's gonna at the end of this scene, you're gonna be able to say something that keeps it on that track and that's going to be enough instead of like spending the whole scene, whole scene, every scene negotiating what the plot is and like deciding between the two of you what's happening next or what's going to happen next. It's like uh, Roy from um, P-Graph, he he refers to it as plotting versus plot. Like, you know, the audience wants the plot, but they don't necessarily want the plotting they don't want the constant like referring back to it and the talking about what's going to happen in the next scene and talking about what happened in the last scene. It's like, you just need those little sprinkles. And then yeah, the rest of the time we just want to see the characters doing the characters things. Yeah. I think that that advice maps really well onto how we approach soliloquies as well. Like right. speeches in the middle of scenes or after scenes when you're alone on stage, yeah. because there's a pressure in a soliloquy to make a plan. You do sort of need to do that. But if you spend the whole soliloquy making a plan, it's a really dull speech. It's yes. really horrible. And you're going to get in your own head and like second guess yourself. And maybe you're trying to make things rhyme at the same time, just for <laughs> fun. Uh, and then you're, you find yourself going down this rabbit hole. But like the best soliloquies are mostly just having fun with a metaphor. Yeah. Like, you know, Macbeth's, is this a dagger I see before me speech, the handle toward my hand and on its blade, dudgeon gouts of blood. Like he doesn't talk about his plan for a while. He's talking about the dagger. <laughs> Uh, and then after a while, you realize the dagger is the plan. The dagger is a sign of, of him and what he wants. And then at the end, he can say, like, all right, that's the bell that's sending King Duncan to hell. And, and you only need, like, a couple of lines of saying, uh, this is what I want. What I want is like this. Here's how I'm going to get it. And then you leave. That's it. Like, it doesn't need to be a long affair, just like the apple scene. You can have fun with the image of the apples and the picking and stuff like that. And then be like, by the way, I'm, you know, the king's weird cousin or something like whatever, whatever it is. Now for a practical nugget. Imagine a scene that has a word count. Your scene has a limited number of words. Cut that by 70% and it's a better scene. I love a nice, neat one. <laughs> yeah. I could have gone on, but I was like, that would totally defeat the point of the advice. <laughs> uh, talk less. Great. Our suggestion is Eclipse. It's already clear enough that you're a better golfer than me. Oh, it's, it's not about who's better. John, it's, I'm just happy to be strolling and playing with you, mate. It's... But it, the, the thing that really gets me, Barry, is that you're also a better person. Mate, it's not about, it's not about who's better and, at anything. I mean, sure, I, I've, got the, I've got the job, I've got the car, I've got the, I've got the good handicap. And look, I've, I've got more friends. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I got the, yeah, I've got the good insurance. I've got the, got the high-paying job. I am. I got the. 
I still play basketball really well. I'm just achingly, bitterly jealous of you. Hey, John, it's it's not about. Let's not talk about how bad you are at stuff. All right. I Including am jealousy. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's that. Oh. Look, mate. One of these days, you're gonna wake up, and you're just not gonna be so sad about how bad you are at stuff. Okay, that's. I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not gonna promise you that you're not gonna be bad forever at, at golf and at and at everything else. You know, I'm not gonna promise you that one day you'll turn around and go, "Look at me, I, a a a putt went in for once." That's not necessarily gonna happen. But one day, I reckon I'm pretty confident you are gonna just accept it you know, and yeah good. yeah and then when i do i will die alone hating you i didn't know you ha- hated me i thought sorry i thought this was coming from you you love you love me and that's why you you wanted to be me I... no no i think i think i really deeply profoundly hate you oh oh damn this is the f- this may be the first thing i've ever been bad at am i a bad friend no okay that's good you are hateful to me as a person, not as a friend, not as a co-worker, not in the kind of husband you are or the kind of father you are or the kind of golfer you are. You are just hateful to me. Oh, I, mean, I mean, if, any, if anyone was, was to ask me how... Um, you know, to, to make a list or a spreadsheet or, or something of all the friends I have, um, you would rank... I mean, I'd put you on the list is what I'm saying, especially mostly because I I like to show how many friends I have. Um, so I'd include you in that and what I'm... I mean, do you hear what I'm saying? I, I include you in my list of friends. Uh, you're a friend to me. I, you are, without question, in a world in which I could commit murder without consequence the first person I would kill. Well, um, I mean, I had no idea that I was failing at, at, at this friendship. Um, oh God. Uh, well, I mean, question, uh, this begs the question, John, why are we golfing together, mate? Why'd you even come out here? What are you, are you here to, are you here to murder me? I'm here, golfing with you, listening to how great you are. Because as much as I hate you, Barry, I hate myself more. God. John. Take the putt, Barry. I'm not ready to take the putt. Take the putt, Barry. Come on. I've, I've got to collect myself. Okay, mm. mate. Um, 
I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense that you don't. It makes sense that even if you do say you hate me, that you love me more than you love yourself. That that makes a lot of sense. I, I see a lot of reason to love, you know, no matter who you are in the world, I see a lot of reason for that person, uh, whoever they are, be it you or anyone else, to love me more than they love you. There's a lot of reasons why that would, uh, you know, make sense. Um, but it doesn't mean I like hearing it. You know, I don't like hearing you dislike yourself. Um it does make me feel a little bit better that you like yourself less than you like me. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, mate. I, I, there's a lot of process here. I didn't know I was bad at friendship. I didn't know that you... that you. I knew you hated yourself, I guess. I don't know. Well, I'll take the putt. Here we go. Look after uh, yourself, bud. I will do. Do the same. All right. I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. There you have it, my friends, Adam Henry on genre and story. If you had a good time with that and you want to know more about Soothplayers, go to soothplayers.com. Make sure you sign up for their mailing list and have yourself a great week. I'm done. We're calling it there because my dog is being too loud with his dog toy. I had to squeeze in this little outro while I could. Thanks for listening to the Improv Conspiracy Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to take a moment to rate and review us on your preferred service. Five stars, please. We've got heaps of original sketch comedy on our YouTube page. Subscribe at youtube.com slash improv conspiracy. 